Hello, hello. Good morning, Storehouse. Good morning. Oh, that is so great. I love that. I, I, that was really good. You guys have great resonance together. There's like community being built right now as we speak. It was really beautiful. Um, so really excited to be with you this morning. We are in a new series in the book of Mark. Now, we are also in the Lenten season as we've been talking about. And I'd love you to just take out that card in your program um, so that you can take a look at it, be reminded. We are reading through the book of Mark together as a community. And uh, we may even want to write out the book of Mark. Sometimes when we sit and we write scripture, something happens, transforms us, and so it allows us to meditate on scripture in new ways. And so um, we started this past Wednesday with Ash Wednesday, and we read through first Mark, but love for you to just take that um, and keep that in your Bible as your reading plan as we go through Lent. We're also fasting. So fasting really, in essence, is not a, um, a, a place in which we are gaining more spiritual favor. It's not so that we are more saved. Um, fasting really is a discipline that we do so that we can take our eyes off of things that distract us, that maybe we go to for comfort, and we can put our eyes on the one who offers us full life. We can put our eyes on the one who gives us complete comfort. And so maybe it for you, it's Netflix. You just say, okay, I'm fasting, no Netflix on Fridays, and I'm going to just turn my attention to Jesus. Or maybe for you, it's snacking. Or um, for me, social media. So I'm off of social media for this season just so I can focus my attention on God. And so in the times when I normally would be, you know, scrolling and just going through things, I'm just purposefully choosing to just sit in his presence God, I have that, you know, I have that desire. I want to grab my phone and just scroll. No, no, you want me to pray. And it's been really enriching already. It's also given me more time to read. So I picked up at the library. I got a good old biography of C.S. Lewis. Any other C.S. Lewis fans out there? Yeah, I love that C.S. Lewis. He's great. He's written the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity, uh, The Four Loves. Those are probably his biggest books. We know him, many of us know him as a Christian apologist, but that's not really how he started. I've been learning a lot about him in this. He's actually Irish. Um, and then he went to England for his studies. He went to eventually becomes a professor at Oxford in the literature department. Before that, he fought in World War I. He was um, injured on the battlefields in France and then came back to England and, and started his professorship. He was a staunch atheist until the age of 32. And at that time, he befriended a group of people, one of which in that group was J.R. Tolkien. And J.R. Tolkien uh, was the author of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, J.R. Tolkien uh, was a Christian, and they formed this group called the Inklings. And in this Inkling group, they would discuss literature and religion. And it was there in that, in that group where one night, probably about 3 a.m., it says, you know, very early in the morning, uh, they were having a really intense conversation. And for whatever reason, it was that night, the way that J.R. Tolkien presented the gospel, that it began to shift from something that was completely impossible to something that was plausible, maybe even possible, maybe even truth. And so he goes on from there, and there's other things in C.S. Lewis's story, and eventually he gives his life to Christ and becomes an incredible Christian apologist, incredible Christian thinker. He has a really great quote that I love, and so the quote goes like this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we cannot say. A man who was merely a man said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense. I have to say that in English voice. It just say patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He says that we can't look to Jesus and see him as one of the greats, like a Mother Teresa, a great thinker, like a Gandhi. He is not on this level. He is not merely a great moral teacher. He is something else because of what he claimed about himself, because what the Gospels says about him. And so we are forced to answer the question, when we look in the Gospels, we are forced to answer the question, who is Jesus? And we cannot remain neutral. Our, lo- our, our world would love to remain neutral about Jesus. But when you actually go to the scriptures, when you go to what's recorded about Jesus, he leaves us no room to remain neutral about who he is. So as we're looking in Mark, Mark presents Jesus just again and again. I mean, Mark is the shortest of the gospels. It is straight to the point. And Mark continually presents us with who Jesus is. And he forces the reader to say, to reflect and say, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus and what does this mean for my life? Now, John Mark is the one who wrote the book of Mark. He is not one of the disciples. He was a contemporary of Peter and Paul. He actually did some missionary journeys um, with Paul as well as Barnabas. And he is actually thought to have used the eyewitness accounts of Peter and to translate them from Aramaic into Greek. So Peter was um, pretty uncultured, uneducated, fisherman guy. He has all these incredible eyewitness accounts of his time with Jesus. And so John Mark comes forward and he says, I will transcribe that. I will put that down into writing into the earliest of the gospels, the very first gospel to be written. So we might wonder why this is the earliest gospel. Like why did, because it happens 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. So we might wonder what took 30 years for people to write this down? Like why, why didn't they write it down right away? This is like incredibly important. They should have written it down right away. But we have to remember that there were eyewitnesses everywhere to what Jesus had done, the miracles that he had performed, the words that he had spoken, the resurrection itself. And so they didn't, they didn't uh, bother writing it down because they were too busy telling people. They were in synagogues, they were around fires, they were at the table, and they were telling people about the ministry of Jesus from eyewitness accounts, from personal experience. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 
of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, to one abnormally born. Paul's saying there's, there's over 500 eyewitnesses to what Jesus has done. And they have gone out and they are telling people about the work of Jesus in their lives, about how he impacted them personally, about what they saw with their very eyes. And so as, as people were telling the story of Jesus around the campfire in the synagogues and, and they got something wrong, you know, I, I think what happened is that Jesus, he flew from town to town. There was an eyewitness there and they would say, no, he didn't fly. He was walking. He walked like a mortal man on this earth and he walked from town to town performing miracles. Or if somebody said, you know, I, I heard that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was, he was there and he was ready to fight and he was brandishing a sword and, and he was ready in all of his power and someone else was there, a disciple who said, I woke up to his crying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he laid down his life for the will of his father. And I saw him as he as he as Peter took the ear off of the soldier and then he healed his ear. He didn't come in brandishing a sword. So we had these eyewitness accounts who were able to, to correct and to tell the story as it's being spread orally. But, but eventually, eventually people begin to die. And so there's a point where 30 years later, a generation later, John Mark is saying, we got to put this into words. We have to put this down. And so he's the earliest one to write the gospel to one of the gospels. So we're going to open the scriptures now to Mark chapter 1. The first 11 verses is where we're going to stay today. Now there's 16 chapters in Mark, and we have seven weeks to go through 16 chapters. So there's going to be times that we're going to speed up, times where we're going to slow down. Today we're just going to really sit in 11 verses, because they're incredibly important, and they are packed with theological significance. So turn with me to, uh, to Mark chapter 1. We'll start with the first three verses and then read on from there. And we're going to ask this question, the fundamental question, who is Jesus? It says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So Mark wastes no time in his gospel, absolutely no time, because if we start at that very first word, the very first word is the beginning. And what does this make you think of in the very beginning? It's the beginning. We might think of Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, there was God. In the beginning, there was God, and he created the heavens and the earth, and he goes on to create the birds of the air and the fish in the sea and the stars in the sky, and he hung the moon in its place and the sunset and the sunrise, and then he creates his crowning achievement, mankind. And they enjoy fellowship with one another. And then we have the enemy of lies, the serpent who comes in, and he starts to whisper lies. This God, he's, he doesn't really love you. He's not giving you all of what you deserve. You could do better. You can have more power. And as he whispered this lie, they begin to believe it. And so sin enters the world, and as sin enters the world, we have greed and jealousy and hatred and corruption and injustice. And that storyline that, that story that started with in the beginning is thwarted by the lies of the enemy, 
by our belief in the lies of the enemy. And so when Mark, he chooses his words very carefully, he starts with the beginning. He's evoking that original storyline and he's saying, but this is on the same level of seismic importance as the creation of the world. And that storyline that was thwarted back here, this is the time of redemption. This is the time where the storyline is made straight, where the storyline comes back to its creator. This is a time of new beginning, new creation. What is broken will be restored. What is, what is uh, lost will be found. This is a time of new creation. So he says this when we answer the question, just in that very first word, the beginning. He says, Jesus, who is Jesus? He is the new creation. He makes our storyline straight. What the enemy has thwarted, he brings redemption and restoration. He makes our stories in line with the one of the creator. He is the new creation. And then he goes on from there, John Mark says, the beginning of the good news. The beginning of the good news. Good news is this word gospel. It's the Greek word euangelion. Can you guys say that after me, euangelion? Yes, speaking some Greek, it's awesome. I love that word. Euangelion was actually not used um, predominantly within, uh, within religious context. In some Jewish sects it was. But predominantly at this time in the Roman Empire, it, the Greek word euangelion was used to announce the good news of something that occurred with the emperor, Caesar. And so there would be a messenger who would go to towns in the Roman Empire and they would announce the euangelion of what was happening in Caesar's empire. Whether it, was, uh, whether it was a new emperor on the throne in the Roman Empire or it was a political victory or a, a, a victory in war. So they would say, the messenger would come into the town and they would proclaim the euangelion. Caesar Augustus has defeated Octavius in the Battle of Tiberius. This is the euangelion. And Mark very purposefully uses the word euangelion. This is the good news. Because earthly kingdoms, earthly kings will rise and fall. And the lordship that's claimed by Caesar at this time is actually not lordship at all. I'm here to announce the true king. The true king who will establish his reign and his throne. And it will not fail. It will not be conquered. And we come under his kingship. So he's saying here, the euangelion. He is the one true king. You know, many of us, we are, all of us, are in certain regards submitted to different thrones in our life, different kings in our life, whether it's our own desire for success or it's uh, people's praise or it's money or it's our career. There's different driving forces in our life that we can submit to. But all of those kingdoms, they will rise and they will fall. They will fail us at some point. And John Mark is here to say that I'm here to announce, I'm here to to state that here is the one true king, one that will not fail you ever, one that will establish your throne in your life and in this world. And he will bring about that restoration. He will bring about the full life that is promised that you think you can get from other kingdoms. It comes in him. That security, that peace you want in other kingdoms, it comes through him. So he is the one true king. 
And then John Mark, John Mark continues and he says this. He's uh, the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, and he evokes the prophet Isaiah. So there's, there's actually a couple of different places that this scripture shows up. We have in Malachi, in Isaiah chapter 40, and Moses utters these words as well. Um, so there's a few different places, but, but the, the most... The historians directly connect it most often with Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And the full passage of Isaiah chapter 40 is this. A voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed." And all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So if we were confused before, as Mark opens this gospel, if we weren't sure what he was saying before, he makes it abundantly clear what he's saying now through the prophet Isaiah. Because the word that is evoked in Isaiah is this Hebrew word Jehovah. Jehovah. And Jehovah is God, the proper name for God in all of its fullness. All of his fullness is in the name of Jehovah. And so John Mark's evoking the name of Jehovah, and he's saying, you know the one, that messenger? Well, that's going to be John Baptist, John the Baptist. And you know the one, the Lord, who is coming in all of his fullness? That is Jesus Christ himself. And so the people, as they're listening to this, and they're hearing, um, and they're reading the telling that name, it's evoking all the times in which they've read about Jehovah in the Old Testament, and their scriptures, They're thinking about where it says, you know, Jehovah formed man from the dust of the ground and he breathed life into him. And then they're making the connection that that Jehovah is the one that John Mark is actually calling on. Jehovah is is Jesus, the fullness of God embodied who has come near. So what is John Mark saying just in these first three verses? He's saying, he's answering the question, who is Jesus? He is new creation. Where that storyline is thwarted, we are now at a new beginning. And that storyline will be thwarted no more. There will be restoration, there will be redemption. And we can choose to be part of that storyline and we can bring redemption into this world, bring his kingdom come. He also is saying that he is the one true king, the one that will be able to establish his throne here on earth and in our lives. And he will not fail. Other kingdoms will rise and fall, but Jesus' kingdom will not fail. He is the one true king. And he is the very fullness of God. He is Jehovah, embodied God, come near to us. So we're going to continue in Mark up to verse 11. And I think there's one more thing that we can really hone in on when we answer the question, who is Jesus? It says this, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So why does he point out uh, his diet and his attire? Well, it's because it was pretty weird. Like, nobody was wearing that stuff, nobody was eating that stuff, and so John the Baptist comes, he's pretty weird, he's different, he's doing his thing, he's preaching in the wilderness, and people are coming to him in droves. 
The, the, the wardrobe isn't, isn't uh, delaying them from coming in droves to be able to repent and to believe in this one that he is talking about. So John the Baptist, he's preaching this message of repentance. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, we can see that the, the message that he is, re, is, is, is sharing is different than the message that's being shared, shared with the religious elite at the time. So Mark's making a very clear point here. He's saying, John the Baptist, he's not like the religious elite that you're, that you're following at this time. Like, he's not going by their rules. He's not caring what people think of him. He's not dressing like everyone else does. And he's preaching something that is completely different than what you're hearing. He's pe- preaching repentance. And he's saying that there is one that is coming who is more powerful than I. It says in verse 7, he says this, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's saying the one that we've waited for. Those prophecies. It has come. Hope is at hand. He is here. Repent, turn your life in the other direction because he is here. And this is the first time we have this idea of the Holy Spirit being introduced in the gospel. The Holy Spirit, the Trinity is referenced in all of in these 11 verses. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three in one. He's saying that you, I'm gonna baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The presence of God will be on you and in you. That is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. You will embody the very presence of God. That is the beauty of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say this. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from the heaven said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So I have a picture of the Jordan here, the Jordan where Jesus may have been baptized. We can picture it in our minds. What's interesting about the Jordan is that it's at this boundary between the wilderness, where John the Baptist is preaching the message, and the promised land, that land that we read about in Old Testament, the land of milk and honey. The Jordan is right at that boundary. And so as you know, we're thinking about wilderness, we may be thinking about things like, a, you know, we might think about a forest, you know, a place that we can kind of live off the land, be rugged, like survivor-esque, if we're thinking like survival shows. But really what the wilderness here is, it's like, it's desert. You can't live in the wilderness. You can't sustain yourself in the wilderness. So it's not survivor-esque, it's like alone-esque. Or if you're, a survi- if you're a Survivor Show fan, it's like naked and afraid-esque. Anyone else, the Survivor Show buff? No one else. Okay, one, Mercedes, thank you. Yes, I love, I love a good survivor show, survival show. So it's like extreme. This is extreme situation. And that, this is the desert that we're referring to. The desert that we're referring to. And that's the place in which Scripture where people would go and their self-reliance would come to die. That they would come in there and they would say, you know, I got this. And pretty quickly they'd realize that they don't have it at all. This was a place where God showed himself to be faithful. 
where when they reached the end of themselves, when they realized that they couldn't do it on their own, that they couldn't sustain themselves, that God showed up and he was faithful. So when they hungered, he gave them manna from heaven. When he thirsted, he gave them water from the rock. Now what's interesting is in the wilderness, the people also wanted to return back to what they knew, to their little kingdoms, their little kings. Moses, I don't know if we can do this. Send us back to Egypt where we were enslaved because it's a lot easier there. The, the, the people are known, the, the, you know, we know how to live there. We don't know how to do this by faith. But when we get past ourselves, when we take the step of faith, it's in the wilderness that God shows himself to be faithful. And so then we enter into the Jordan River, this place of baptism, And for Jesus, when he comes to the river, it's not about repentance. We know Jesus is without sin. So when when John the Baptist is preaching the message of repentance, that doesn't apply to Jesus. People are coming, they're repenting, they're turning from their old ways to God's way. But what what Jesus does this for is an incredible um, indication of why we need to look to this for ourselves. And that is he did it for his identity. He did it for him, for us to see the proclamation of who he is. Because when he came up out of those waters, God the Father says in another translation, you are my beloved. On you my favor rests. And Jesus listened to that voice again and again. He came back to that identifying voice again and again. When people were applauding him, he came back to that voice, I am his beloved. My identity is in is in his his love for me. When it came to people laughing at him, I am the beloved. People were praising him and rejecting him, I am the beloved. When people came, called out Hosanna, and then in the same breath called out crucify him, he went back to that, I am the beloved. Jesus knew one thing, I am the beloved, and his favor rests on me. This is the same voice that is here for you. The same voice that is here for you. In John 15, 9, it says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So as Jesus came up out of the water, you are my son, we know that as we repent, as we turn from our old ways and we turn towards God, We come out of the waters, you are my daughter, you are my son, you are my beloved, and my favor rests on you. When we're in that metaphorical Jordan, in the waters of baptism, we we repent of the ways in which we've wandered in the wilderness, wandered in the desert, we've we've tried to rely on ourselves, our own abilities to get things done. In the waters of baptism, in the waters of Jordan, we say that doesn't work. All of those little kingdoms, they rise and they fall and they fail me. But Jesus' love, Jesus' gift to us never fails. His kingship never fails in our life. This is why we emphasize baptism around here. Baptism just isn't a silly little tradition that we kind of adopt some things and do. It's because it is a proclamation of our identity. It is an an identifying thing in which we say we are the new creation. We are part of the new storyline. We are here as agents of redemption in this world. It's a proclamation that we say we are submitted to the one true king. His lordship is over our life. 
In baptism waters, we say uh, that we declare Jesus to be the fullness of God. We accept his gift that was displayed on the cross, the gift for our sins, the gift that makes repentance possible to turn back towards him. And then in the, ba- ba- the waters of baptism, we identify ourselves as his beloved. We accept that as our primary identity. It's not the other things that are being said. It's not the applause or the jeers of the men around us. It is him and him alone. And we are his beloved. Jesus goes on from here. Now, there's only one line in the Gospel of Mark about his temptation in the wilderness was interesting right after this, right? So he, he, he's identified as the beloved. And he's drawn into the wilderness, into the desert to be tested. And remember, in the desert, that's where our faith becomes real. That's where, that's where we are tested and we're able to take that leap of faith. But it is the identity that he has as the beloved that allows him to face these testings. Where it says, you know, in, in the desert, prove yourself that you're my beloved. Do something. Change these stones into bread. He says in the desert, the evil one comes in, that same snake from the beginning, be sure you're famous, jump from this temple, and you will be known. Or grab some power so you can have some real influence in this world. Don't you want some real influence, Jesus? Isn't that why you came? But Jesus says, no, I don't have to prove anything, I'm already the beloved. So as we think about who Jesus is to us, as we think about the fact that he proclaims new creation, that he is the one true king, he is the fullness of God, and he calls us beloved, I have a couple of questions for you. The first one is really simple. Who do you say Jesus is? And let's not have any patronizing nonsense of him being just a great moral teacher. He doesn't leave that in his scriptures or what he proclaims about himself as an option. Who do you say Jesus is? If your answer is, you know, I don't, I don't know, I'm not really sure, that's okay. We want you to know that this is a safe place for you to ask your questions, for you to express your doubts, for you to dig into that. that is, this is a safe place for that. Maybe you're in a space where, where you've just never made that declaration. You've never put your foot down and said, I'm done wandering in the wilderness. I am done wandering in the desert, trying to rely on myself. I'm ready to declare that Jesus is who he says he is. He is Lord and Savior. He is my King. So maybe you answer that question and you say, today is the day. I just need to make that step of faith. And then the next question is this. Have you repented of your sins? been baptized and been filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you repented of your sins? Have you chosen to stop going after your own way? Stop trying to satisfy yourself, find life in this way, and turned your, your direction towards God and gone the way of Jesus? Have you been baptized? Baptism is a chance for us to proclaim our identity. We love baptism around here. Baptism is awesome. And so maybe today, your next step is to say, hey, I haven't done that. I've been a little nervous about it. didn't really know what it really looked like. But, but yeah, I declare myself. I, I, I know who I am. I am beloved. I am the new creation. 
So I'm ready. I'm ready to get into those waters of baptism. And so today you need to come forward and say, I'm ready. Baptism's my next step. I'm ready to identify myself as a follower of Jesus, as his new creation. And then have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit is not, is not, uh, is not given to you in the, in the waters of baptism. Holy Spirit is when you proclaim Jesus as Lord of your life. And so many of you in this room, you've declared Jesus as the Lord of your life. And so maybe today the question is, do you recognize you have the Holy Spirit in you? Like you have the fullness of God, the power of God in you. Are you living in your workplace with that awareness? Are you living in your neighborhoods with that awareness? Are you taking that Holy Spirit awareness when you go and you, 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 you're hanging out with your friends? Like all of those spaces are holy spaces because you carry the Holy Spirit with you. So maybe we need to be reminded this morning that when we walk into a space, we are carrying the fullness of God with us. And that space is no longer just any space, it is a sacred space. And God's up to something, he's always up to something. So we just need to tune in to what he's doing in that space. So who do you say Jesus is? Have you repented of your sins, been baptized, and been filled with the Holy Spirit? We're gonna take communion now. Communion is another symbol given to us in the, in the New Testament. It's a way for us to identify ourselves with a gift given to us by Jesus Christ. And so when we take the bread or the wafer in our case, we think of his body that was broken for us as a loving sacrifice for his kids. And when we take the, the juice, we, we think about the blood that was shed for us. And we remember the gift given to us on the cross. It allows us to have new life, to be part of that new creation story. So I'm going to pray for us. Pray that the Lord who has spoken today would seal what he has spoken to us. And that we would take steps of obedience in the direction that he calls us. Lord God, we are thankful. We are thankful for who you are. We are so thankful that your reign means new creation. And that we can be part of that redemption and that restoration. We are so thankful that who you are means the fullness of God, that when you came to us, you came in fullness, but you came near. You came close to us. You didn't wait for us to have it all together. You came close to us to make right what was wrong. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one true king and that you are establishing and have established your reign, Lord. And we live under your lordship. We live under your kingship, God, and we declare you to be worthy. And we are thankful, Lord, that you call us beloved. You're thankful for our identity found in you. Give you our lives. We thank you for who you are. We pray this in the precious and sweet name of Jesus. Amen.